we've just ended Thanksgiving. It's, it's an amazing time of, of year. Um, people nationwide are reminded, we're told by the culture for once to do something wonderful and to give thanks. It's one of the first lessons we teach our children, isn't it? You're continually telling little kids, as soon as they're old enough to understand the concept, you need to say thank you. And kids are amazing at it, aren't they? Don't they just overwhelm you with gratitude and joy? <laughs> Not really. A lot of times they have to be told over and over again, say thank you, thank you. <laughs> say it like you mean it, thank you. And there we go again. And there's this battle, right, where you're at least hoping for your sake in front of your mom that they fake it and show some gratitude for the socks instead of the toy that they had hoped to receive. That lesson is drilled into our little skulls. It's our only hope of making us decent humans. It starts when we're young, but it's a hard lesson. And as I'll share with you in the course of this sermon, it's something that I've had to be taught again and again and again. And we're going to jump ahead to Luke's gospel, to a story of gratitude. Look with me in Luke chapter 7, please. I beg your pardon. Look with me in Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, and I'll be reading from verse 11. Luke 17, verse 11, drops us right into the life of Jesus with these words. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Sometimes the brevity of biblical stories and the familiarity, if you've read them before, kind of dull your eyesight to the drama of what's happening in these historical occurrences in the life of Jesus. We're told that Jesus is going from one place to another, and ten men stood, it's very specific, stood at a distance from him and cried out to him. They shouted at Jesus with no embarrassment whatsoever because they were desperate. And the reason they're desperate, we're told, is because they are lepers. Their cry is simple, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. We're told, scholars tell us, that the word leprosy in the New Testament can encompass a lot of different skin diseases. But if these men suffered from what we call leprosy today, they were actually sort of the living dead. Years ago, when I first started attending this church as a college student, I met a young man through the Spanish ministry who was one of the few people I've ever even heard of who had actually volunteered time in ministry inside what is called a leper colony in Latin America. I had studied it a little bit in textbooks as part of biblical preparation, but to hear Hector tell me what leprosy actually looked like, what it did to people. Leprosy proper is a disease that ravages the body. It wears people down. It eats them alive. But he explained to me the worst part of what leprosy does to people is the leprosy itself is causing them no real pain because one of the first things it does is destroy nerves. And that's actually part of the problem. 
with nerves gone, with that part of the body that's been infected growing insensitive, they open themselves up to all kinds of injuries. They could burn themselves without knowing it. They could step on something with, an, with a leprosy-infected foot and wound themselves, cut themselves, gash something open, and have no idea until they felt the blood flowing or someone called it to their attention. He told me of someone who unwittingly rested a part of his body on something that was literally burning his flesh alive, but he didn't know it until he could smell his own burning flesh. That's the desperation. Notice there's ten of them, and they call out from a great distance. That's because the law of Moses required that the moment someone was certified as having leprosy and only a priest could make the determination... There's a specific procedure, but once it was pronounced that you had leprosy, in that moment you practically ceased to exist to all the people in your life. From that moment, you had to leave the community. So a young man who suddenly finds a part of his body infected and insensitive and fears the worst but obeys the law and goes and shows himself to the priest the moment he hears that he has leprosy, just like that, He's cut off from his wife and his children. Just like that, he loses his job. He loses the opportunity to be in community. He loses the welcome to worship. He has to be separated hygienically from all of his community in a single moment. That's likely why there were 10 of them as well. Because they had no prospects and because no one was coming to them, people like this typically lived in the ancient world near garbage dumps. They would scavenge for food, and they would make these friendships, these alliances out of desperation while they watched themselves literally die together. That's why ten men are together, and seeing Jesus, notice, from a distance, they cry out, Jesus. His name literally means Savior. Master, have mercy on us. Master's an honorific title. They're saying, Jesus, we think you're in charge. We think you're greater than this. Do something for us. Have mercy on us. And I want you to notice what Jesus responds. Verse 14, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, that's interesting. What's Jesus up to? Don't you think a blessing would be appropriate? Some kind of promise, some kind of word of comfort? Let's look at the text a little bit with me. What does he tell them to do? Just go. Go back to the priest. A priest once told you you had leprosy. Go back. Show yourselves to the priest. Is there any blessing or promise announced? No. What's he up to? See, slow reading like this can help you understand what God wants you to learn because unlike me, Jesus always knows what he's up to. He's never random. He's always purposeful. We're not. Sometimes we don't even understand ourselves. Have you ever walked away from a situation saying to yourself, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why am I this way? Well, who knows? I mean, you've known you all your life and you don't know. How could the rest of us possibly know? I have a hard time figuring out even what we're about. Jesus never has that problem. This is God in the flesh. This is eternal God who for love of mankind, John, his nearest friend, says became flesh. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. 
And his humanity has not in any way changed his deity, his knowledge, his purposefulness in everything that he does. They call out for mercy. He replies quickly, go show yourselves to the priest. Why? What's he after? What's he want? This is the part where I'm inviting feedback. He's inviting them to put their faith into action. Faith. Faith. He's giving them a simple instruction and inviting them to trust his word and to do what he says. It's as simple as that. You're right. And look what happens. Verse 14 again, it says, as they went, they were cleansed. As they went, as they started walking away from where they were back to the priest at that moment and only at that moment, as they obeyed, they were cleansed, they were healed. And man, I've tried to imagine that moment. I wonder what that would have looked like. Hollywood would have its hands full making that special effect realistic. I wonder if it happened all at once or they were treated to watching the ravages slowly be rolled back. I wonder if the man who's missing part of his hand sees it slowly restored in front of him. I wonder because they've grown accustomed not to feeling parts of their body and part of their body perhaps was ravaged and they could no longer see it or sense anything back there. I wonder if someone tore his robes apart and said, look at my back. And the other man with amazement said, you're good. You're healed. It's whole. I see muscle again. As they went, they were healed. It, Jesus called for faith. They gave it. They were cleansed. And verse 15 says, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan, and there's another one of those attention-arresting words. Because the Samaritans and the Jews, it's hard for us to understand it. They hated each other. One of my Hebrew professors claimed that the Samaritan tradition was that if a Samaritan saved a Jew's life, that Samaritan would be executed. Which, if you think about it, puts the parable of the Good Samaritan in a whole different light. Because if you read it without that knowledge, the Samaritan's just the only decent guy in the picture. The others are jerks. This guy's just doing what's normal and human. No, if my Hebrew professor was right, what he was actually doing in giving that life-saving aid was risking his own life. If he was discovered in that moment, he himself would be killed. That's real love for your neighbor. And the Samaritan is the only one, Jesus says, who comes back. And I want you to hear Jesus' reaction. Verse 17. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Now remember, this is a real man standing there. This is God, but it's God in the flesh. It's the Word become flesh. And he's having an actual, normal, wise, loving, perfect human reaction to what he's witnessing. First of all, the Samaritan comes back shouting praise to God, and he falls down at Jesus' feet and thanks him. That looks like worship to me. And Jesus isn't troubled by it because he knows he deserves it. 
He knows that one man and one man alone apparently is doing the right thing, and he starts talking aloud, and not really to the man himself, if you'll notice. Let me ask you, how does he sound to you? He's disappointed, and if I may, surprised. Why? Because of something that always disappoints God, ingratitude. How many lepers? How many came back to say thank you? You think the ratio has changed much? May I suggest to you that inside my heart and inside the heart of the people around me, a similar war wages, and the results are usually the same. The ratio hasn't changed much. The world is filled before a loving, merciful, good God. The world is filled with ingratitude. And Jesus is disappointed. He's hurt. Because many were blessed and only one said thank you. This matter of gratitude is huge across the entire Bible. Here's one passage. Let's read that together. Ephesians 5 verse 20 says, Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Six of you were into it. Let's try for more. If you read this carefully and thoughtfully, those of you who have quick memories will go home with the verse of the Bible hidden in your heart. Let's read it. It says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is to characterize the ordinary Christian life? These are ordinary Christians who are receiving the letter to Ephesus. They've got trouble they need correction. Paul addresses their marriages. Paul addresses their work habits. He talks to ordinary people. And one of the things that is to characterize the life of the ordinary Christian, Paul says, is constant gratitude in all kinds of different circumstances, all kinds of thanks in all kinds of ways, Paul says, should be given to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let me ask you again, does that seem difficult to you? It is. To cultivate, maintain an overflowing attitude of gratitude is one of the hardest things in the world. Perhaps that's why God mentions it so often. I'm going to read to you from across Scripture. I won't mention all the references, but I'll move from 1 Chronicles and the Old Testament to 1 Thessalonians in the New. Listen to Scripture. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Cry out, save us, God our Savior. Gather us and deliver us from the nations that we may give thanks to Your holy name and glory in Your praise. Ezra. With praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Here are several psalms. I will give thanks to the Lord because of His righteousness. I will sing the praises of the name of the Lord Most High. I will praise God's name in song and glorify Him with thanksgiving. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and praise His name. Jeremiah made this prophecy, from them will come songs of thanksgiving and the sounds of rejoicing. I will add to their numbers and they will not be decreased. I will bring them honor and they will not be disdained. 
1 Corinthians. I always thank my God for you because of His grace given to you in Christ Jesus. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? 2 Corinthians now. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Here's one that's easily ignored in the 21st century. There should be no obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. First Thessalonians, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Why is the Bible so insistent? Because thanksgiving, gratitude is right. But boy, is it difficult. I was helped greatly by a Puritan whose name many of you know. His name was Matthew Henry. He wrote one of the most well-known and best-selling commentaries on the whole Bible. It's available online. And Matthew Henry knows far more about Scripture and God. He's forgotten more about God than I'll ever know. And one of the most interesting things comes out from his personal life. He was robbed. His wallet was stolen. He calls it his purse because this was long ago. But listen to his reflection. Regarding his robbery, Matthew Henry wrote this. Let me be thankful. First, because he never robbed me before. Second, because although he took my purse, he did not take my life. Third, because although he took all that I possessed, it was not much. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. Well, that's a game changer, isn't it? The facts are he was mugged, he was robbed. A man unjustly, a criminal, took everything he had on him, and he turned it to thanks. How could he do that? Attitude makes all the difference. Years ago when I was a Young missionary in Mexico, um, we didn't have many volunteers that had risen up as we had later. And in the early, early days, my parents were out of the country. They were back in the United States. And we just went through one of those seasons where it seems that everybody's getting sick, injured, and hurt all at the same time. And that meant for me, for a week, I spent a lot of time at a state hospital in Mexico. And everything about it's tough. They really restrict visitors, so you have to get permission. The hospital was not easy to reach. It was terrible to find parking. The smells and the sights of the care they were providing were often degrading and just flat-out depressing. And it just took, a single visit took pretty much half the day. Meanwhile, I've got other responsibilities, and the clock is ticking on this public obligation to preach a sermon. So after about the fourth visit, I got a little tired and complained to God. Have you ever complained to God? And I said something like this, could, could I get some help or could you slow the pace down because this is it's too much. And God has never audibly spoken to me, but I got a distinct impression, I believe, from him that has helped me from that day to this. Here's what I heard in my mind. 
If this is too much for you, I can arrange it so that you can be in a hospital bed and others can come visit you. Well, it made a difference. See, it actually is possible to be grateful in all kinds of different circumstances. One man has come back to say thanks to God while nine have run on to rejoin their life. Why? Because they had a lot to look forward to. Let me speak briefly in their defense. Why did they not think to return and give thanks to Jesus? Because they were so excited to rejoin their life. The marriages that had been shattered by that diagnosis are about to get started again. Children who have been left behind have grown, and now they're going to be reunited. They can hurry to get their jobs back and get their life started again. It may seem reasonable, but if I hear Jesus correctly, it's wrong to not give thanks. That's why ingratitude is so common. Sin always has its reasons. It's very, very hard to find one person to publicly say, I'm ungrateful. My family, my friends, my boss, my God have been very good to me, but frankly, I don't appreciate it much. You'll never hear that from anybody, and yet you feel from the, your interactions with others that ingratitude is epidemic and it hurts. You have to consciously think of the things that God has blessed you with, and you have to purposely say thank you because it's right. And not only is it right, it's good for you. For the last six months, I've been reading about gratitude. And I just this week came across someone I've missed. Dr. Robert Emmons is a professor of psychology at UC Davis, and Berkeley, UC Berkeley just published a summary of his work. Over a decade of careful study from him and from others at the University of Pennsylvania have found that when God tells you to be grateful, it's not only because it's right, it also happens to be incredibly good for you. The things that God commands are good. Dr. Redmond's report this, people who are grateful have all kinds of blessings. Physically, he says, they have stronger immune systems. They're less bothered by aches and pains. They have lower blood pressure. They exercise more and they take better care of their health. They sleep longer and they feel more refreshed upon waking. Psychologically, grateful people have higher levels of positive emotions. They're more alert, more alive and awake. They have more joy and pleasure. They are more optimistic and they are happier. Socially, they're more helpful, more generous and compassionate. They're more forgiving, more outgoing, and they feel less lonely and isolated. So what really is going on, it's not that happy people are then grateful. It's actually that grateful people become happy. That's why your heavenly father insists on gratitude. That's why this man missed so much. Because look at the end of the story and look at the last verse. From verse 17, when Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. And I want you to see something from the Greek text. What that literally means is this. Literally, your faith has saved you. What's happening here? It looks like the one man who came back and said, thank you, received a greater blessing that the nine knew nothing about. 
It's not that Jesus rewarded him, it's just that his heart, moved by gratitude, actually led him to a deeper relationship with Jesus than the nine ever knew. They apparently went home and rejoined their lives, which was perfectly understandable but completely wrong, and missed out on the greatest blessing of all. This man, in gratitude, genuinely loved and trusted Jesus, and Jesus said something to him, over him, that he did not say to the other nine, your faith has made you well. Literally, your faith has saved you. I think what happened is that nine went home with healed bodies, but dark souls. And one man alone, in genuine gratitude to Jesus, received not only his physical healing, but his spiritual forgiveness. And salvation came to every part of that man. And as I look at that story, and I notice that Luke leaves it there, burning on the page, and then moves on, I ask myself this question, I wonder what my ingratitude has cost me. See, the thing with your heavenly Father is, He's not an unwise father. He's a good father with good plans, but he intends to teach. At Christmas time, all across America, moms and dads are going to, moms, dads, grandparents, stepparents, all kinds of people are going to rally and do their best to give the kid that one toy that's going to make everything amazing. And you're going to see some videos on YouTube again of kids dancing around the tree and walking on their hands and shouting praises to mom and dad, right? But you know what so often happens in those homes? The kids get so engrossed in the toy that they play with it till midnight, and mom, who worked three jobs to make it happen, comes in and says, okay, buddy, it's really late. Put that away. And the kid goes, no. I did that once. One time as a kid, and my mother said, oh, I see how it is. And she took all the toys away, and she said, you'll get these back when you can be more grateful and obedient. You think God knew more than my mother? He a better parent? Absolutely. Of all the things that Jesus did, this story of 90% ingratitude is left for the followers of Jesus so that they will not miss this single lesson. Being grateful to God leads to even greater blessings. I'm going to consciously invite you now to do something powerful. If you'll turn your sermon sheet over, you'll see something at the top that simply says, I'm grateful. And now that you're consciously thinking about the goodness of God and the many things that God has given to you and the many things you enjoy on a day-to-day -day basis that maybe, like me, you've taken for granted, I'm going to give you literally two minutes to write down as specifically as you can and as many as you can list in that short period of time the things you're grateful to God for. And certainly we could go on writing. But now I want you to take that same list. You've been conscious. You've put things down on paper. You've maybe rethought some things as Matthew Henry did. Because maybe your family, like most, is having a time of trouble, but you've been reminded that with those who are mistreating you, there are still those who love you. Maybe your health has been failing, but you've been conscious of the grace of God and the love of others in the middle of that trial. Now take that list. And in prayer, thank God.
Heavenly Father, we have much to thank You for. Make this the beginning, Lord, of conscious, consistent gratitude to You. Change our attitudes in our hearts so that we would not rush off with Your gifts and forget You, the giver. That we would cherish all the good things You lavish into our lives and Your presence when things are not so easy and not so good. Make us a grateful people. And Lord, from that generosity, make us into the kind of people who would fall at Jesus' feet and give thanks to You and receive from You, as this man evidently did, a greater blessing that we knew nothing of. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen. God is good. He loves you. Life is hard, but God is good. Sin has wrecked creation and everything in every one of its dimensions. But your Father's heart to you has not changed. He sent His Son a sacrifice for sin. They were right to call Jesus Master, and evidently only one man in gratitude discovered that Jesus could be more than a boss. He could also be a Savior. My invitation to you personally, if you don't know Jesus as Savior, is that you would turn to Him in prayer this morning and say, Jesus, I understand it. I've sinned. My conscience tells me so. Your Bible, when I open it, tells me so. I'm turning myself in. I'm guilty. I need your mercy. I need your salvation. And if you do that this morning, I would invite you to take one more step and let us know on that card. Week by week, we're coming into contact with people who are having that encounter with Jesus, and it's changing their lives. He's changing their lives, and what we as His disciples need to do is band together in gratitude. That's why we give this offering. From the very first Christian churches, literally from the first churches that existed, the instructions all across the ancient churches were, every week, set something aside in keeping with your income and give it when you gather as a church. Why? Because it increases faith, because it increases gratitude, because it makes you remember that these things, this money that you've earned, you earned with the life, the health, the strength, the opportunity that God gave you. It's all grace. It's all love. The breath you just took, that's a gift from God. My ability to stand here with an open Bible and tell you how I mess up and show you the grace of Jesus to cover all of us, that's a gift. It's all a gift from a loving God. So let's praise Him and thank Him and honor Him together with everything we do, including this offering. Jesus, we give it to you in your name, in your purposes, not for us, Lord, but for your glory and the good of others. In Jesus' name, amen.